1: It is the morning of March 6th. The time is 1.30 a.m. in Kiev. And Kyiv still stands 10 days into the Russian invasion. Kyiv still stands and Russians are still 15 kilometers or more outside the city. This is Eric Fogg with my third episode on Ukraine. And this is Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora podcast. And welcome. Today we're talking about what's wrong with Russia. Because, holy smokes, something is wrong with Russia. And I don't just mean that it's a totalitarian nightmare state. I mean that something is very wrong with its military. And we're going to be talking about what we know is wrong, what we think is wrong, And rife speculation about what might be wrong. The ground situation is, as usual, extremely murky. And particularly murky because it has become practice for the open source intelligence guys um, that I follow to not post stuff about what Ukraine is doing until they've already done it. So we don't know anything really about Ukrainian troop deployments um, about their plans, about their movements, any of that by design uh, this is to protect Ukrainians so let 's review what we do know. First, generally, the Russians are stuck just about everywhere, except for the south. the south they seem to be making uh at least you know decent progress but with the problem that they need to occupy the cities that they are taking. And so uh, that limits the number of troops that they can advance to the next stage. Um, And it's very, very likely that uh, the Ukrainians essentially get stronger as you move deeper into Ukraine and the Russians get weaker. Supply lines have been a major problem for Russia, a, a stunningly big problem for Russia. Um. There does seem to be a breakthrough of at least some Russian units between uh, Chernihiv and Sumy, which is in the northeast. Um, They've not taken Chernihiv or Sumy. Uh, They've not taken Kharkiv. So uh, this would be a Russian convoy that is a little under-supported, and we tend to know how that goes. Um, They're pushing towards the northeast of Kyiv which is a little worrying for the defenders, just depending how many troops are there, how much hardware is there, and what the morale of those troops are. Um, It's not clear. Uh, But those troops could get blasted to heck. I don't know, because we don't know where the Ukrainians are. But as you've probably heard already, the main part of the war has moved to this just absolutely brutal siege warfare, Um, especially in the south and the northeast, Uh, they are Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine is just getting blasted to, uh, to dust, uh, Mariupol, which is a big city in the Southeast and would, uh, and if captured would draw, would, would create a land bridge, uh, an occupied land bridge from the Donbass in the East to Crimea in the South. Um, it is under uh, its own form of brutal siege warfare. It's cut off. There's no electricity, no heat, no water, no food. They're literally trying to starve the Ukrainians out or freeze them out. Um, it's a really bad time to be in Kharkiv right now. Excuse me, in Mariupol, in in both of them. Um, the same kind of siege warfare is likely to happen to other cities if the Russians can manage it. And this is because... The Russians are getting their butts absolutely kicked in direct conflict. Um, when they go head-to-head with Ukrainians, it ends badly for them. Uh, now, what's interesting is one, sort of, sort of like one tweet I've seen that was citing a U.S. official said that Ukraine has lost a higher percentage of its hardware um, versus the percentage of hardware that Russia had brought in. It was something like 5% to 10%. So, that could still mean that the Russians are actually losing a lot more hardware um, than the Ukrainians. And which is interesting about this is that, again, war is not just about the hardware. It's about the will to fight. And so can the Russians just grind this out to destroy you know, nearly 100% of Ukraine's hardware while losing 50% of their own that they brought into the area? Uh, this is not obviously true. Um a war of attrition generally favors Ukraine, except for the fact that the war of attrition um happens around their cities. Um happens in their cities, happens to their people. The human cost is getting worse and worse. Uh the individual stories you see are more and more heart-wrenchingly horrible. Um you know, photos of of mothers weeping over dead children. Um old ladies uh, on crutches being brought along by Ukrainian soldiers to try to escape rubble. Um, I've posted both of those pictures. Uh, It's just unimaginable what Putin and and the Russian army are willing to do to these people, Um, especially in a war where, unlike in Syria, uh, they're not fighting for their own home. They're not fighting to... um, you know, beat a rebellion in their own country and keep their country united. Um, They're not fighting for their lives the way that in an ethno-sectarian war, uh, a lot of people feel like they're fighting for their very survival and they're willing to do much more. This is a war of uh, premeditated optional aggression. And the brutality of what the Russians are doing uh, is something that I think most humans... Thought we'd largely left behind, at least in Europe. Perhaps most importantly for the long game of this war, that forty long, forty mile long convoy remains stuck. Now, one of the things we we don't like, we need to be clear about this forty mile long convoy, is that it, you know you get you hear forty miles, you're like that's that's really long, and let's just say that it's about you know thirty feet uh from you know since it's stalled they're pretty close together um let's just say it's about 30 feet from the the front end of one vehicle to the front end of the other and they're too wide if that's the case then you have 14,000 vehicles 14,000 in that convoy which is just ridiculous Um, a lot of them are logistical a lot of them are carriers of stuff you know ammo fuel food troops Um, a lot of them are weapons. A lot of them are armor, but it remains stuck like four days in or more. And we're going to talk about why this could be happening. Um, you know, the short version, actually, let's talk about it now. Um, one mired in mud. So, uh, actually, so, so Ukrainian, um, drones and human, uh, you know, humans with, with light anti-armor weapons, such as those javelins and M-Laws, um, and probably artillery, have blown up part of the front of the convoy, um, and that has the rest of the convoy stuck. Why? Because there's a bunch of, you know, wrecked vehicles near the front. And so you might say, why not bring some of the logistical vehicles you have, like, you know, basically tow trucks and cranes to the front to move it out of the way? Well, they try to drive around, and they get stuck in the mud. It's really muddy there right now. This is something that the Germans learned the hard way while trying to invade Russia in the winter, in the late winter, was that the ice started to turn into mud as they approached Moscow. And this huge convoy is running into the exact same problem that slowed the Germans down in a decisive and, and war-ending way. Um, unfortunately that for the Russians then, is, it still took three years. But the the exact same problems are happening to the Russians. Uh, and it's an almost delightful level of irony for those who favor, you know, peace and freedom and democracy um, that this is happening. Uh, apparently also, like, I've been looking at all sorts of, like, w- really interesting, like, little tiny tidbits of open source intelligence, such as the tires on these Russian vehicles that go into the mud, in order to give them better traction in the mud, they let out some of the pressure but they are cheap Chinese knockoffs of a apparently high-grade Michelin tire. And the cheap Chinese knockoffs, when you put a lot of weight on them when they have low pressure, tend to rupture. And so a lot of these tires, when they when they try to go around, a lot of these tires just blow. And so you have these these huge, heavy vehicles stuck in the mud with blown tires. Um, and they don't want to just keep doing that and making the situation worse, so the rest of them are waiting. Um... You also apparently have really bad maintenance of these vehicles. A lot of them are very old and haven't been well maintained. Um, you know, Ukrainian attacks are still harrying them. The Ukrainians have blown up bridges so that you know they they can't keep going anyway. They would have to go around in the mud. There is this like general incredible lack of prep. It is one of the most amateur looking attacks you can imagine, and they remain stuck. We'll, we'll talk about this this. A little more later, but it, what is kind of incredible is that the Ukrainians have not decided to just turn a bunch of artillery towards this road and blow it to hell, because you can create easily a highway of death there um, and just cripple the Russian advance in the north. Because these vehicles, I mean, it, right now that Russian advance from the north is crippled because these vehicles have like vital fuel and food and ammunition and troops for the forces in Kyiv, and they're a long way away. Now, probably it's the case um, that there aren't a lot of people hanging out with these vehicles right now because it's cold. The temperature right now in Kyiv is below freezing, and you can't sit in these trucks and just burn diesel, you know, to to keep the heaters on because you're short on diesel. And so Russian troops, you know, you can't just hang out there for four or five days and not freeze to death. So, and, and... Even if you somehow could, the Russian troops are not gonna. So these vehicles are probably abandoned at this point, which may even be why the Ukrainians aren't blowing them up. And the, you know, and because they're just idle, they're not doing anything. So the Russians are probably all just like walked to the front part of this. The the whole thing is a disaster. It may literally not start up again for the rest of the war. It's just crazy. Um, What else is going on? A few um, cities have been occupied and the Ukrainian people are just out there protesting in front of these Russian troops constantly and kind of giving them a psychological hard time. You know, grandma's being out there saying like, why are you here? Go away, right? In Russian, in Russian, right? In their home language. Um, And saying stuff like, your mother must be ashamed of you right now, right? And that's just hard of morale. Um, And uh you also have western material keep rolling in now how much the the westerners are going to renew those materials is interesting and planes have still not been coming in as much as zelensky desperately wants them um but the, the ukrainian um air defenses continue to operate the russians do not have control of the skies still which is it's you know in modern warfare it is absolutely a yeah a thing you know it, it's standard tactic to as much as possible win the win the sky first. And you do it with a ton of missiles and a ton of air, you know, a ton of like very high up bombing um, so that it's hard, you know, it's, uh, it's hard for uh, air defenses to hit the bombers. Um, you take out the air defenses as they light up because they're big radar beacons um, that you can target missiles onto and take them out. I mean, it's just It's the obvious thing to do. In Desert Storm um, and in the Gulf War, there was a long period, long before troops went in, of suppression of enemy air defense. The Russians didn't do it. They still have not managed to do it. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Um, The Ukrainian defense ministry sent out a tweet that counterattack time is coming. Um, Will that actually happen? Are they just trying to mess with the Russians? Um, Are they just trying to bolster their own people? Um it's possible that counterattack time could be coming. I think one of the things that I don't think is being talked about enough is the Ukrainian troops if they get enough volunteers will outnumber the Russians. Um there's a there's a claim that, that I've seen on Twitter that's been retweeted enough that by by sort of credible open source intelligence guys that I know to suggest that it came from somebody even though I don't know who it is that that is credible that 100,000 volunteers have been enlisted. Well, the Ukrainian military, its total military forces, mind you, was already 245,000. The Russians put about 200,000 in the theater. And so have. is it the case that we've added 100,000 troops in Ukraine um, and they have 300 some odd thousand? Like at that point, you know, we talk about the Ukrainians, Ukrainians being outnumbered and outgunned. For a while that was true because these were their frontline troops. But at some point, Kiev is not surrounded. You can get more people into Kiev. You can get more people towards the front lines. You can get more people into that heart of Ukraine where, you know, to to just keep harrying the Russians and giving them a really hard time, you can potentially counterattack. The ground situation is very, very fluid right now and very interesting. Um, And I say fluid not because it's moving a lot, but because a lot could happen. The Ukrainians may have a lot of options, again, because the Russians don't own the skies. Russian morale is low. The Ukrainian high command is still in control. And they know that when Ukrainian troops encounter Russian troops, the Ukrainians tend to do pretty well. Holy simoleons. The Russians are still doing a lot of damage, not just to the Kharkiv—not just to Kharkiv and Mariupol. Um, They are doing damage to Ukrainian troops. We don't tend to hear about this as much because uh, it's just bad for Ukrainian morale, so it doesn't get tweeted and shared. And basically Twitter is down in Russia right now. The the Russians— aren't able to, the, part of it's the Russians are so not credible that people don't listen to what they have to say anyway. They're not like really a source of intelligence. And so nobody's really tweeting about Ukrainians getting their butts kicked. And I'm sure there are places that that is happening. But we don't know where. And we don't know how often. But Ukrainian morale remains quite high. Um, and and also it's worth keeping in mind, again, the, the Ukrainians are, are able to throw they are willing to throw everything they have. They are in total war. And Russia is not willing and not able to create a total war posture because the nation wouldn't accept total war the way that in World War II nations accepted total war. And they retooled their entire economy towards it. Russia's not willing to do that. It's not going to fight a five-year war. Um, and we'll talk about a few problems a few other kind of issues with that as we, we talk about what could happen next. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like what we're not seeing and what that might be telling us. So one thing we're not seeing is first, like any Russian logistical organization of any sort, it is an absolute disaster. Again, the South seems to be doing better. Um, they seem to be supporting their troops better. Um, and at this point, probably the troops are able to, like, kind of loot uh, stuff in Ukraine. Other things are going to run out in Ukraine. Um, but the the complete lack of, like, logistics and planning and, and operational support is mind-boggling. Um, Russian, or sorry, Russian, troops march on their stomachs. Um, armor moves on its stomach, too, right? It needs fuel. And that's just not happening. And it probably has the Russians stuck in a lot of places. And... It's just kind of a testament to how like kind of how unsophisticated as as brilliant as they've been, how unsophisticated the Ukrainians have been, that these they're not able to just you know, defeat in detail these stuck Russian troops. Um and again, they're outgunned. The the Russians, for all of their shortcomings, have a massive advantage in not only hardware, but the modernity of their hardware. Except for those javelins and those M laws. Um, So, what's missing for the battlefield uh, other than logistical support for the Russians? One, the Russians aren't using digital and encrypted messaging, which is crazy. They're using a lot of analog shortwave radio, which means that the Ukrainians can hear what they're doing, and also the Ukrainians can jam that radio by just blasting, um, you know, really loud. On those frequencies that they're able to hear, um, so like there's a, there are stories of the Ukrainians blasting uh, their national anthem on the uh, on a bunch of frequencies that the Russians are using, whereas the Ukrainians are using encrypted digital communication, so they have a communication advantage. Um, the Russians don't seem to be flying a whole bunch of um, intelligence flights where the Ukrainians are getting a live stream of intelligence from the Americans. The Americans are are just totally transparent about that now, which is a gutsy thing to do publicly because, uh, you know, the Russians... The Russians are already calling the sanctions a declaration of war, which is just posturing and bluff because they're not going to, like, poke the NATO bear, not going to be like, oh, we're at war with NATO now, and actually doing anything about it. They're just going to whine. Um, and it's probably for domestic purposes only. But... Um, the other thing that's, like, really super missing is the Russian Air Force. Where on earth is that? Because they've got a pretty good air force, and they used it to effect in Syria. Um, where are they? Like, they're still putting, you know, they're still putting stuff in the air, just in, like, in little bits. It's almost like a bad movie where the, the evil guys, they just, like, kind of send their goons in little you know little groups a few at a time in order for like john wick or whoever or the avengers or whoever they are to beat the crap out of them um the russians seem to be doing that with their own air force and it's really not clear why it might be because they're afraid of losing it all at once um it and and so a senior u.s official says quote from a tweet here Uh, Ukraine still has a, quote, significant majority of aircraft available against Russia, including fixed-wing drones and helicopters. Ukraine still maintains overall air superiority after nine days of war with Russia. So the U.S. official is claiming that it's not just contested air. The Ukrainians actually have an advantage somehow, which makes no sense because the Ukrainian Air Force is is a little, you know, Ukrainians have been pretty cash-strapped. Um, they don't have a giant oil industry to siphon from the way that the Russians do, and they've been fighting war in Donbass forever and all sorts of problems, right? So the the Russians have such an incredible hardware advantage in aircraft that if they brought it all to bear, they'd be fine. And it's, it's really MIA. Um, where's the Ukrainian armor? You know, I'd kind of expect at this point the Ukrainians to, like, roll out. You know, you have this, like, stalled this super stalled uh convoy and the forward operating base for the russians in front and uh, the ukrainians have fought them off enough and they're getting enough intelligence from the air they know where all this stuff is why aren't they rolling out hundreds of tanks at once to just blow it all to heck not clear um i haven't seen a lot of i haven't really seen any ukrainian armor is it hiding is it waiting for something not clear um where's ukrainian artillery we've seen some use of that but uh is it you know why isn't it being turned to blow up the big convoy is it being used for other stuff primarily is it being used in kind of like a desperate bid to you know is it being used as like counter battery fire which is you know artillery shooting at artillery um because the more urgent thing is is taking out russian artillery um and where are the ukrainian counterattacks um where are the, the reinforcements and reserves? Again, they, may be, they, are, happen- they are happening. Um, you know, the Russians will take a town or they'll take an um, important crossroads or they'll take an airport and the Ukrainians will go get it. So they're there, but the Ukrainians should have the ability to counterattack and relieve some sieges, right? If the Russians are sort of like sitting comfortably in siege mode and just lobbying artillery, if you sent a bunch of Ukrainian armor and air and troops at the same time, um, you could dislodge them and send them into a route, which you'd think the Ukrainians would want to do because the people of Kharkiv and Mariupol are in a lot of trouble. Um, It's possible the Ukrainians can't move this stuff easily. And it's possible it's because the mud is so bad. Now, in the south, the mud is not nearly as bad. Um, In fact, it's quite dry compared to the north. It's warmer, it's drier. And the reason that really matters is uh, it allows the Russians to be able to move on uh, dirt um, in a way that they can't really move on mud. And so the the Ukrainians can blow up bridges and and they can even blow up their own highways, but but the Russians can kind of go around. So it means in the South, the Russians could be a lot more mobile. Um, But in the North, maybe nobody can be mobile and maybe that's what's going on. Um, So again, uh, intelligence is murky. So it could be that a lot of this stuff kind of is going down in a way that uh, we don't really know about. Um but it does it does seem a little odd that stuff's missing. Um and so let's talk about like r- why the missing stuff, but most importantly, why the terrible performance for Russia? Like why is their logistical capacity MIA? Um why is their Air Force MIA? Why are the Belarusians MIA? Because Belarus did declare out loud it was gonna attack um uh their their A hole president uh lukashenko i think um you know he shared this like big map of the big plan about how the belarusians were going to join and that was going to turn the tide of the war so let's go over a few of these one ukraine could be holding its armor in reserve um it's less sophisticated than russian armor um and they are outnumbered by russian armor uh and so uh armor on armor like a tank on tank battle would probably lose you know end badly for the ukrainians um but I don't quite know why they'd really be doing that, other than to maybe hold Kiev. Um, because as long as they hold Kiev, they're in a way winning this war. Um, but or they're using it, and we don't know about it. I I think it's odd. I I don't know why it's missing, other than they're holding it in reserve for some reason. Um, again, it could be that stuff that that Ukraine has uh, committed its forces largely. Um, or that it is kind of slowly bringing up, you know, bringing up reserves, bringing up the, bringing up the tanks. Uh, it's not entirely clear again. Um, so they could be doing stuff. We could see this change in a few days. We do know, we do know that the Russians have effed stuff up. So we knew that the Russians came in underprepared because they thought this was going to be too easy. Okay, fine. Um, we know that, but like, Again, the Russians have, uh, they, they have allegedly a good military. Um, and so we're 10 days in, and they still haven't really figured it out except in the South. So what's the deal? So first, they're sending mostly conscripts. Um, and so those conscripts have, like, limited ability to uh, really do anything too effective. Um, they're pretty good at pinning down uh, Ukrainian troops in the sense that Ukrainian troops actually have to be there to contest them. Um, And so it probably gives the Russians the ability to take their more experienced troops and try to gain a tactical advantage in certain areas at a time and win in detail. Um, And the Russians clearly have limited maintenance abilities too. It it seems that like the Russians have kind of starved their military of experience and maintenance for years now. um, And you're starting to see that breakdown occur. It may also be the case that the more veteran Russian troops just aren't interested in going to the meat grinder. Um, You know, unless you're just going to start, you know, unless your commissar is going to start shooting people the way that, um, you know, the way that it happened in the Second World War, you really can't do much if you have whole units that are not interested in fighting. And if they're not interested in fighting, uh, well, too bad. Um, The, you know, regarding the convoy, Again, like what's going on there is you have this you have this kind of death spiral, um, because the front got stuck and and therefore a bunch of Russians had to you know the Russians who are like in the trucks like can't be in the trucks they're trying to go to the front and unstuck them a bit at a time um, because you can't go around because the mud's brutal but who thought that was a good idea like who thought that was going to work out okay especially after you know the first few days where these unsupported convoys you know, didn't work out. Like nobody went with a smaller group and secured uh, secured the bridge or secured the, the highway. Um, it's kind of wild that anyone thought that sending a giant convoy without a lot of support was ever going to work. And um, it must be that, you know, again, it must be that like the commanders who are running this are just like they're confused or they're feeling rushed um, it's probably like Putin is probably screaming his head off right now. Like he's probably having kind of a late stage Hitler, um, kind of thing where he's just howling at people and people are, you know, his own people are clearly scared. Like we know that, you know, we know that high command was surprised by the operation. We know that Putin's advisors were surprised by the operation, so They weren't really prepared. And Putin saying, come on, let's go. You got to get in there. We got to move fast. Um, because every day this goes by is a problem. And so someone was just like, fine, just send everything. Just go, go. Like, so you know, get it in there as fast as you can and surround Kiev and oops, didn't really think it through. And now they're in a much worse situation than they were before they sent that because even if they haven't committed all their troops, and the Russians have apparently committed 90% of the forces that they put in the area, um, even if you hadn't committed them all, you can't get them there anymore. That area is stuck. And so the Russians are hoping desperately um, that their forces from the northeast can go support them, um, you know. Also, the uh, because the Russians had rushed it and again thought it was going to be easy. At the beginning, you have these cascading problems where you know fuel and rations can't get to the front lines where they're needed, and so troops at some point are, again are going to get the heck out of there. They're going to abandon their vehicles if they can't eat and they don't have fuel to literally keep themselves warm, much less move. And they also don't want to just be sitting ducks. So you know, you have this cascading problem where, where Russians will abandon vehicles and unless you can bring fresh troops with a bunch of rations and a bunch of fuel to those vehicles, those vehicles aren't going to do anything. They're actually just stuck and they might be stuck on the road. Um, again, especially where, uh, you know, the front of some of these smaller convoys get blown up. And so you can't really go far. Um, you have to kind of retreat to a safe spot where you have a base and you have heating and food. The 40-mile convoy debacle makes it really hard to do anything to Kiev except shell it. And the Russians are only probably so willing to shell so much of Kiev. Like, downtown Kiev is mostly, it seems, pretty unscathed. It's like the outskirts and towns outside of Kiev that are getting blown up. It might be literally just that the Russians are not willing to shell Kiev. Um, And this may be political, it may be from the top, but it may be from the bottom too. Um again, it would be like a little bit like Americans being like, we're just gonna pound, you know, Washington DC into the dirt or New York into the dirt. No. So um and it's also possible that the Russian troops have gotten sick of stuff up there on that convoy. Um, you know, satellite imagery is only so good. Um and uh in the words of uh, Lucas, Fa- Lucas from Fox News, um, quote, it's been three days since the Pentagon first called the long Russian military convoy outside Ukraine's capital stalled. Many now wondering where the Russian soldiers are. U.S. officials think, quote, something must be wrong. If something's wrong, it may be that there's like a maybe a mutiny of some sort going on or at least a mass, um, you know, mass walkout. Uh, that convoy is probably not going anywhere, which is crazy.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
1: Um, I think part of the problem is clearly that Russians don't want to be fighting this war, except for like a few ultra nationalists or like mercenaries, right? You have a holes everywhere. Um, but probably most of the Russians don't want to be fighting this war. Like you have stories of people getting conscripted sort of last minute, getting pulled out of boot camp, um, and being told they're going to go fight. They're not prepared. They don't understand why they need to take over Ukraine. Um, they're not interested in it. They, you know, you have people saying they feel sold out by Putin, um, you know, on these videos and, uh, you know, and, and, a lot of them just saw their buddies get chewed to pieces. Um, a lot of them just, you know, a lot of them came down these routes where they, they've seen burnt out Russian vehicles. Um, and so they're, they don't want to die for this. Again, when you fight on defense, you're willing to hold and die. When you're on offense, you tend not to be willing to. So they're, they're quick to retreat um, and their commanders don't want to risk routes, so they're being conservative. Um, r- Russian commanders are moving to the front line to take control of the situation as well as they can, in part because their radio stinks so much that they, they can't communicate from the back lines, but also they need to like stiffen the backs of these guys. But some of them are getting sniped, and so it's not clear how much they're going to want to do that. Um, You know, again, I think the, the surprise factor here was because Putin and the really high up folks who were in on this knew that people in Russia didn't want to fight this war. So they had no idea they were going to Kiev in the first place, right? So like you don't have this kind of like unified, like the way the American army works where military works is, like, everyone knows the whole operation. They know where they fit within the operation. They know what their objective is within the operation, why it's important. They know backup objectives. They know everything. Um, and the whole idea is so that, like, you can make decisions on the ground and adapt in order to achieve your objective. The total opposite is going on here. And, and it seems to be because, again, Putin knew at the outset that... The Russians probably weren't all that excited about this. Um, you know, he wanted to fade accompli for two reasons. One of them is that, you know, he wanted to stop the West from being able to respond, but some of it is that, you know, if everyone kind of like blinks and then you've got control of Kiev, well that's one thing, right? You break the break the morale of the Ukrainians, you the Russian troops are kinda like, okay, that was easy. Like, you know, sure, we'll we'll replace the the evil Western puppets with new people, no problem but they weren't ready to fight a war. They clearly were not ready to fight a war psychologically or logistically or, um, you know, or, or uh, you know, tactically. And they didn't want to. And now, you know, the Russians are kind of in too deep. Um, they're not, you know, you, it's it's really hard at this point to say like, oops, and then go home. And so the Russians are just kind of stuck in it. Um, I also wonder, this is, This is wild speculation at this point, but, you know, do you have a lot of commanders who are so against this war, especially like high command or advisors, that they're kind of like sneaking around under Putin's nose? Again, the same way that a lot of the military in Germany was when it was pretty clear they were in bad shape and like Hitler was sending them the wrong way, you know, sending Germany to its demise. Um, You know, do you have a lot of these commanders going like, look, we don't it's not it doesn't seem that important. To me to take Ukraine and certainly just like sending more and more of our people, especially our, our best people um, and our, you know, our equipment that we paid so much for into a meat grinder and seeing, you know, these these sanctions cripple us at home and stuff like that. Um, you know, there is this sense that I probably have that like this is not good for Russia. And so they may be dragging their feet. They may be unwilling to send troops into the meat grinder um, because maybe they you know, God forbid care about these troops, but, but they also certainly care about like the hardware, um, and the ability of the Russian military to operate effectively after this war is over. So, you know, and again, they were so surprised that they couldn't really be supporting it. So they might be trying to limit the damage to the military, um, uh, limit the damage at home, slow the war down, um, and, and wait for an opportunity for a negotiation where they get to, you know, take their military home. Um, we don't know because, like, nobody can say it out loud. You know, you, you say out loud that you don't support this war, you go going to jail. Uh, that's literally true now. Like, there is a law on the books. You say you don't support the war, you go going to jail. And especially if you're in the military, you don't get to go to jail. You get a court-martial. You're going to get hung. So you got to at least outwardly be like, oh, yeah, I totally support it. And I know it's not a war. It's a military operation. But, you know, it turns out, like, when you have uh, a world where you can't speak freely, um, you know, people... People can't voice their grievances. They can't have this debate on the open. Um, And so they're just going to kind of quietly drag their feet, and they're going to have conversations behind closed doors. Um, We won't know what's going on, but then again, nor does high command. Oops. Um, I had this note, you know, Kiev's the origin city of all of Russia. Probably some want to capture it for that reason, but they're reluctant to blow it to heck. Um, And so that's... Oh, yeah. And then also... Uh, where's the Russian Air Force? You know, we talked about that. My guess is they might just be unwilling to attack Ukraine. You can't force them. Um, Flyboys don't like flying into death traps. Uh, These guys are like, they're officers, right? They're well-educated. They know what's going on. Um, They probably don't like this war. Um, They see the Russian Air Force getting chewed up. Uh, Their commanders think that, you know, their commanders know rightly that if the Russian Air Force got really chewed up, it would be devastating. Um, Russia not having a functional Air Force um, would just be crippling to Russia. Um, and again, they might just be giving up on the war and, and you might just only be able to get pockets of the air force to obey commands at a given time. You know, a lot of orders get lost and, and oops, we have logistical problems and oops, we don't have fuel and, you know, or, or something got dropped and lost. And, um, You know, so there are all these ways to go. Like, look, I'm not going to send my guys in to get their butts kicked here. And so you don't, you know, it's clear the Russian. There is something wrong in the Russian air force. Like, there's just no there. There's no doubt about it. The Russians aren't sitting there saying, you know, in a united way, saying like, you know, what would be the tactically uh, advantageous thing to do? Um, You know, just send a little bit of our air force in at a time. That's a great idea. So they're clearly not doing that, which means something's clearly wrong. it's likely that Russia's intelligence on Ukrainian mobile air defense is just weak at this point because uh, they're sending these jets in there and these helicopters in there and they're getting blown to hell. So if you knew where that stuff was, you'd at least try to take it out first um, with the with the jets that are willing to fly. And so given that the uh, Ukrainian air defense is working, it means that... They don't have good intelligence, which means that the flyboys know they don't have good intelligence, which means that they don't want to fly themselves into a meat grinder. Um, And again, it's really hard to get these guys to fly if they're not willing to. Um, What are you going to do? Threaten to kill them? Right? Which I guess you can, but, uh, you know, you might risk a mutiny. And speaking of mutiny, right? Like, this is a real potential threat. Speaking of mutiny, where is Belarus? Where is Belarus in all this? Because... To be clear, Belarusian high command ordered an attack. They ordered the army into Ukraine to support the Russians. And it's not happening. Uh, One piece of evidence that we might actually know is that uh, a number of small units in the Belarusian army already crossed the border into Ukraine a few days ago, but were turned back because the soldiers refused to take part in combat operations, which is like, again, it's it's. Disobeying orders is a big deal in the military, right? They have harsh punishments for that, including death. And they just said, nope, we're not interested. Um, And so it seems pretty clear that the Belarusians want no part in this and won't follow orders. And uh, there's just such a risk of massive insubordination or mass surrender and possibly defection and possibly mutiny and uprising if they attack Ukraine en masse that it's not worth it. Because look, if what happened... like. Just like with a route, you know, a route in a military, like in a military situation, you're not trying to actually win the, win the battle by just eliminating everybody. Unless you're fighting the Japanese, you're trying to get the the enemy morale to break and and get them to rout, right? And like a route can turn on a dime. A route can turn on just like a little warble on the troops. Like panic spreads like a like a disease. Um, like a virus and, uh, and, and the same is true with a mutiny. Right. Once a few people have the courage to mutiny, the people looking around them, if they're interested in it, they they will do the same. And a bandwagoning and snowball effect happens because once enough people start mutinying, you go like, oh, well, we're the ones with the guns and the officers are not. And uh, since our buddies over there aren't going to shoot us like one group got mad, they mutinied, nobody shot them, which means if I mutiny, nobody will shoot me, which means you might just have like a, a total uprising of the military on your hands. Belarus has to know that at this point, given what's happened. And therefore, you know, they're just not willing to attack because an attack would mean they would lose control of their own military, which is unacceptable. So Belarus is not going to join this war, which is which has just got to be a huge boost to Ukraine because the Belarusian military while it's not huge, could send some fresh troops in, which, you know, from a different route from the far west, which could, you know, it could make a big difference. And uh, they're just not doing it. So goodbye, Belarus. Um, I don't see this changing anytime soon because you're not going to take, you know, you're not going to take this situation where the Belarusians can like, they can see Twitter unlike the Russians um, and they can see what's going on and they're not going to suddenly want to go into a meat grinder later. So that's over. And so basically, like, it seems that the big thing, the big common thread, like the the Occam's Razor level explanation on this is that just the Russians just aren't that excited about this. And the Russians not being excited about this is a huge problem. And it's going to continue to be a huge problem for the Russians because some of them can hear what's going on at home. Um, you know, some of them can call their moms. They apparently still have cell phones because um, we know the reason we know they still have cell phones is we've seen um, – you know, well, maybe it's not that they still have cell phones because maybe it's the Ukrainians calling them. I I was going to say, we see captured soldiers talking to their moms, but they might just know their mom's number. um, They're calling from Ukrainian cell phones. But, you know, these guys can can hear scuttlebutt. Like, scuttlebutt spreads no matter how much you want to. Stop it. And they know things are bad at home, um, and that's not helping. Now, it's either going to, like, encourage them to try to hurry things the heck up, um, or they're just going to get super demoralized and be like, well, look. If we win, these are, things are still going to be bad. Um, you know, the, the like they they have to kind of game this out for the future, and they're kind of watching their their country crumble in a lot of ways. Um, international companies, these, these multinationals are just pulling very quickly out of Russia. I mean, like, you know, everything from like Microsoft to Adidas, which is kind of a big deal in Russia, um, to like MasterCard and Visa. In addition to all of the legal sanctions, you've got a bunch of basically voluntary sanctions by companies who are willing to take a revenue hit in order to like either be on the right side of history or do the right thing, or because not doing so will take off a lot of Westerners like Coca-Cola hasn't done it yet. And, there's a call to boycott Coca-Cola. Now, I don't know how much that's going to happen, but um, it is a risk. And so whatever whatever is the cause, uh, international, these multinationals are pulling out and shops are closing. The ruble has fallen to a record low at 124 to the dollar. Um, it dropped from, uh, again, like 80 some odd at the beginning of the war. So it's lost like 35% of its value or something, which means that Again, you can like import and buy 35% less stuff with your money. Um, There's a risk of hyperinflation. Uh, Interest rates have spiked massively. Um, uh, And guess what? The stock market, the Russian stock market hasn't technically felt the hit because it's closed. Um, And so the fact that it's closed means you have all these people panicking who want cash, like who want liquidity because everything's going to heck. So they they want liquidity. Um, They don't want to be in the stock market. So they want to sell everything, but they can't get liquid. Uh, And so, you know, they want to get out of it even more. It's going to, whenever it reopens and it will have to reopen at some point, whenever it reopens, I mean, if it doesn't, you just have all this cash tied up that nobody can use, um, which is also bad. But when it does reopen, it's going to be a bloodbath and that's going to make things even worse. Um, amidst a lot of pressure, the United States is now actually considering cutting off Russian oil imports, which the, you know, the white house kept saying, we're not interested. We're not interested. Um, it's not strategically good for the United States. Um, and this is of course, bad timing because gas is already wildly expensive, which might actually be part of the, um, the driver for the, you know, the invasion was, you know, the Russians were like, ha ha, you know, it's winter and, um, gas, uh, including natural gas, so fuel and fuel and natural gas and, and petrol are already expensive and the West isn't willing to eat this. Um, and, and you do see a lot of people with expensive gas really feeling pain, you know, among the, the inflation that's there. So there is pain to the West, but despite that 80% of Americans want the U S to cut off Russian oil imports. And, uh, one of, one of the problems generally with, uh, voters is they kind of like want to have their cake and eat it too it's sort of like everyone in america wants um the united states government to spend less but uh nobody can pick you know nobody wants them to spend less in any particular area um uh, certainly the ones that benefit them so this is going to be a problem um where there's pressure in the united states to not import russian oil but there's also pressure to drop fuel prices so you can't do both um so uh, but anyway, there is that pressure, and, and the White House is now actually considering it. Um, it turns out that there's hoarding going on in Russia, too. Um, you know, we saw a run on ATMs. Um, apparently, sugar and flour seem to be running short. There's, uh, um, like, multinational grocery stores, which aren't going to shut down just because it's inhumane uh, to not provide food. But they're limiting how much even sugar and flour can be purchased, um, which means that there's hoarding behavior going on. Uh, that's really bad. Uh, drug prices are spiking. Jet fuel is apparently starting to get in a short supply because the Russians are using their refined fuel for the war. Um, and and again, because like the Russians have a lot of oil, but they have a limited refining capacity. In fact, the Russians are a net importer of refined fuel. So they don't refine enough for their own country. They import refined fuel. They export the commodity of crude oil and they import refined, you know, diesel and jet fuel and stuff like that. So, um, and again, though, it's actually, I just thought about this. The lack of jet fuel may actually also be driving what's going wrong with the Russian Air Force. Maybe not. Um, the, the story about jet fuel being in short supply was there's like a South Korean plane that wants to get the heck out of there and the airport didn't have jet fuel for them. So it may also be that the Russian Air Force was hoarding the jet fuel for the war, uh, but it might be, nationally low supply. I don't know. There's obviously a massive crackdown going on in the media. Um media channels are just disappearing. Um uh and so it's very clear to Russians even though like even though there's a bunch of censorship, it's very clear to the Russians they're being like increasingly cut off from the world. Their situation is getting worse. Um and again, there's there's like this isn't a war. This isn't a war that that m- many Russians want, you know, obviously a lot of them are like thousands have been arrested for protesting, but even like your average Russian on the sidelines, like they're they're not sitting there saying like ah yes we have to take Ukraine and like we will bet you know this isn't this isn't like the Blitz where uh, you know we won't give or this isn't like the Great Patriotic War like we won't give an inch. None of that, right? This is just a total you know. To most people, they're like, why are we doing this, huh? And you know, why am I suffering? What are we getting out of it? What does Russia really get out of this? And. So, uh, things are bad in the, mother, in the motherland, and that, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on Putin. So, how can this end, given that Russia's so messed up? Um, you know, in this war, tactically, air power is going to matter. Matter um, Zelensky is rightfully begging for more from NATO. He is ripshit angry, um, for NATO's refusal for a no-fly zone. He said, quote, every person who dies from today will be because of you. Um, understand why he's angry. Very much understand why NATO is not willing to get into an air war with Russia. Uh, it's net, net a very bad idea for Europe and the world, um, because that's where you get significant risk of nuclear war. Uh, and that's unacceptable. Um, It should be to everyone. But again, the Ukrainians, very sympathetic why they're so upset about that. And so Zelensky's begging for more air power from NATO. And the Russians, again, unless their air force is just totally wrecked, it it could be that they're being conservative and if so they can eventually grind down ukrainian air power you know try to move troops forward enough to capture enough air bases and capture enough anti-air stuff and they're trying to move more anti-air you know ground to air anti-air stuff into position except it's in that damn convoy a lot of it um but like could they in the long game grind down ukrainian air power maybe um they can do at least somewhat per- precise strikes at will with missiles, although maybe they're running out of missiles. Um, U.S. intelligence seems to think that the, the missiles that they had set aside for this, um, they're actually starting to run out of, and, you know, do they dip back into that well? Um, they're certainly moving more stuff to the front via train, so that they're, you know, logistically, they're willing to double down, or, or in terms of material, they're willing to double down there. Um, you know, but how many troops can you actually get to wield this stuff? But so, so if Russia can grind down Ukrainian air power there's a major problem for Ukraine. But if Ukraine can grind down Russian air power, there's a major problem for Russia. Um, once someone establishes serious air superiority, it massively changes the tone of this war. Um, but but as long as it remains contested, which it seems to, because just like, you know, you're losing a couple dozen, uh, a couple dozen like fixed wing craft and a couple dozen helicopters on both sides, like not that much. And both have like hundreds of, Um, how many great pilots they have is a great question, but, um, you know, assuming it stays kind of contested, it's a race against time. Um, there's a long artillery war going on. And again, it is horribly, just unimaginably brutal to the humans, um, in the Ukrainian side. It is, it is gut wrenching and it is enraging. Um, you know, and as I, I told some friends, like it's actually okay to be angry at Russia as a whole, um, and not have to apologize and not have to feel too bad for the Russian people. Um, if Putin hadn't enjoyed a wide base of support, if he wasn't, if the, you know, if taking Crimea was not popular in Russia and it was, um, this wouldn't have happened, right? Um, you know, the Russian people for supporting Putin bear some responsibility here and, and you have a lot of innocent people in Russia who are suffering, but, uh, it's okay to want them to lose, Um, and to want them to feel enough pain such that they will pull out. But you have this race against time. The economic screws keep tightening harder and harder and harder on the Russians. It's going to get worse for them by the day. It's not going to stabilize, not anytime soon, especially if things start to warm up. If this lasts long enough and things start to warm up and Europe doesn't need Russian gas nearly as much, um, then Russia's in a lot of trouble. So, Russia's in a race race against time, and they're going to just keep throwing artillery where they can, um, sort of at the problem. Because again, it's artillery because the Russian troops just can't; they don't have the morale to win face to face fights against the Ukrainians. They keep getting pushed back, which is wild. Um, again, not everywhere, but in a lot of places. Um, and so, what's the race against time? Well, really, there's a risk of a coup or a risk of kind of like an uprising or just like a collapse um, in Russia. That's unrecoverable. And uh, and it's because like a lot of Russians are going to get angry and angry and not necessarily even like it's not, it, it's very unlikely <laughs> that the Russian people will rise up, but it's somewhat likely that, you know, just some of these senior folks in in Russia kind of get the either implicit or explicit message from the West that, look, if you'd stop this, we will loosen the screws and we'll reintegrate you. Um, but, you know, this has to stop and not happen again, and so at what point are they going to either, like, have an intervention with Mr. Putin um, because of his addiction to brutality, uh, or are they going to have an intervention uh, and get rid of him, um, put him in jail, kill him? Who knows? Um, But it has to be, but, like, what can their objective really be at this point? Um, Truly, what can their objective really be? Because, because... The successful regime change is ridiculous at this point. I say successful because, like, sure, maybe you can if you throw enough meat into the grinder. You can take Kiev and you can kill Zelensky and you can bust in some guy and say, like, this is your ruler now. Congratulations! And you can fake a, you know, you can uh, fake a an election. All sorts of stuff. But you are going to have an endless. Um, insurgency on your hands. You can't occupy, um, you can't occupy this because the Ukrainians aren't going to go like, well, we got a new ruler now. So I guess we're going to roll over and die or like roll over and take it. No, they're too angry. They're too pissed off. You failed to get the fate accomplished. So they're not gonna, they're not going to accept it. They're not going to go like, well, okay, you've got someone that Putin said is in charge. Right? So, um, from Jason Lyle, who I've been following a lot, open source intelligence guy, um, He's following stuff more closely than me. Seems to know his stuff. He tweeted, quote, I don't see how Russia has enough troops to encircle Kiev effectively, lock down the major cities, and fight an insurgency all at once. It has no operational reserves. Um, Belarus and CSTO states aren't coming. um, And mass mobilization of reserves is politically risky and low quality. So, um, you know, would Russia... Russia's not able to throw hundreds of... Or like 500,000 or a million troops into Ukraine... In order to pacify this 42 million person state. And even if every woman and child leaves, um, you still have 20 million pissed off dudes um, who are going to resist. And as long as Russia does not occupy the borders with Hungary and Poland, the West can keep pouring material in, and you can have, you know, Ukrainians in the West who are well armed and ready to keep fighting. And trying to make a push back to Kiev, like they're not just going to give up. So, the the it's really hard to imagine what success really looks like for Russia at this point. And this is the part where this this whole thing starts to become barbaric, because what are you even trying to achieve? And the problem is, of course, what you're trying to achieve, if you're Putin, is survival. Um, Because you have to survive, for you to survive literally, you have to survive politically. For you to survive politically, you have to come out with with something that looks like a victory. And so what can he be doing? Well, he could try to say like, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to hold this like southern territory that that they seem to be successful at occupying and just move back into that um, from a negotiation, right? So they're not going to move back unilaterally they'll negotiate and they'll say, you've got to give us the south and east or we'll keep pounding these cities into oblivion. Um, You know, the Russians have figured out that they can, at least for now, just keep lobbing artillery. Now, can the Ukrainians form some sort of counterattack and dislodge that artillery um, around at least, um, you know, Kharkiv and Kiev? Because if you can, the Russians are now in a lot of trouble um, because they don't have a lot of advantage and they're on the retreat. So what happens then? But... As long as like the status quo remains and they keep just pounding these cities into the dirt um, and making Ukrainian people suffer, there is some, you know, there's some pressure on Zelensky to find a way just to end the war and be willing to give up something for it, right? Like in some ways right now, the Ukrainians are hurting worse than the Russians, kind of. The way that the Russians, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, right? Like Ukrainian civilians are being slaughtered. Their their cities are being destroyed. So, yes, they're hurting worse. Um as long as as long as the Ukrainian people don't just like give up uh because of the shelling, um they're gonna keep going though. And the Ukrainians probably don't want to give up because they're like, well, if you think this is bad, wait till the Russians are in charge. And uh, you know, again, just like the Russians, like the Russians aren't even learning the lessons from their own World War Two defense that like this has become the great patriotic war for Ukraine. Like Ukraine decided it was gonna stand. Right. And like the more the Germans sent meat into um, into Russia, into the Soviet Union, and the more brutality they had, the harder the Soviets fought until they turned the tide. And now the Soviets had a uh, long term population advantage over the Russians, so they were able to then march back into Berlin. But the Ukrainians can can they can develop a manpower advantage in the army unless the Russians go through a mass mobilization, because guess who's going through a mass mobilization? It's Ukraine, right? They're very willing to do that. And so even though a lot of these troops are, are pretty low, um, low quality for the Ukrainians because they're brand new, well, they can at least hold down the fort, um, and do a lot of the logistics and stuff like that. And like, get the veteran troops on the front lines, uh, fighting back and get them fresh and all that good stuff. Right. And, and like rotate out and give these guys a rest and, um, you know, kind of man the barricades and give and stuff like that. Right. So, uh, so you can try to pound Ukraine into the dirt. Um, if you're able to kind of hold out and defend these artillery points long-term, um, and kind of hope that it gives you enough bargaining power through these talks in Belarus that you can walk away with something that looks like a victory. And go home. Otherwise, I just kind of see the Russians sticking around and continuing to do that until either one, they get dislodged by the Ukrainians and things get so bad um, that you have a military coup um, or the economic situation in Russia gets so bad that you have a military coup. So that's how I see it ending. Um, and that's that's what's wrong with Russia. Uh, there's a lot. And it turns out that in a lot of ways, it was a paper tiger, um, with a low morale poorly trained conscript army uh, with some equipment that uh, you know that that is like kind of the tip of the spear is this like kind of a you know pretty elite group um, but it turns out if you fight yeah, they they've not had to fight anyone resisting them in any serious way since Afghanistan which they lost and they didn't know had they weren't ready to deal with resistance that's what that's what's going on in Russia is that it is a, it is there due to a lack of professionalism due to a lack of political alignment due to a lack of like a good vision for this operation. um, That, that was, you know, communicated down the line due to a lack of excitement about it. um, uh, And, and due to a lack of like long-term maintenance of the military, uh, Russia is a paper tiger and, uh it's in it's it's long term prospects, no matter how this ends on the ground, are very, very bad. So uh hope you enjoyed that, hope that was helpful. Um remember don't let the pundits do the thing for you. Uh remember please consider donating to some of the humanitarian groups who are helping Ukrainian refugees in Poland and um and other places. Uh and, you know, some of them who are even doing work on the ground, such as Doctors Without Borders. Um you know, please consider donating to them rather than to the show. And with that, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Slava.